Hey, thanks for joining us today at Divine Church. We're one church with two locations and reaching around the world with the help of our online service. We exist to connect the world to Jesus Christ. And if you'd like to partner with us in doing that, you can share this service with others and you can give by clicking the link below. But for now, prepare your heart for some incredible worship and an inspiring message. So we're gonna lift him high in this place. He is overcome. So we become overcomers in him, amen. Now the darkness fades into new beginnings as we lift our eyes to our hope beyond. All creation waits with an expectation to declare the Shouts of praise to God this morning. 
on a train to California at 25 years of age. Set beside me was a lovely rose and wanderer. Well, how are you, church? Good. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you this morning. For those of you I have not yet had the privilege of getting to meet, my name is Andrew, and I get to be one of the pastors here at The Vine, which is a tremendous honor and a tremendous privilege for me. But I don't know if you know this or not, but there are actually some downsides to being a pastor. Um, One of them is there's some assumptions that are made about you. Um, One of those assumptions is that you're kind of white collar and you're not able to do any DIY, any do-it-yourself kind of home improvement projects, um, that you're not capable of putting things together that come out of an Ikea box, (laughs) that, that you're not skilled at being able to repair things in your own home. And unfortunately, in my case, all of those assumptions are 100% correct. Yes, I I cannot fix anything. I have no discernible skills with my hands. It's very disappointing, and here's why. I grew up in a household with a man. My dad can fix anything. He can fix cars. He can fix yards. He can fix houses inside and out. There is nothing the man can't fix, and I can't fix anything. It's really frustrating because growing up as a teenager, I would go to all of these job sites with him because throughout my like, entire childhood, he was either um, cutting down trees for a living or he was building houses. I mean, that's kind of what he did. And so I would go to all these job sites with him and I didn't get any construction skills at all. My only discernible skills on a construction site are tied to demolition. That's why I love Demo Day. Anybody else love Demo Day? Yeah, okay, so we got some other Demo Day fans in the house. That's good. I remember my very earliest experience with demolition. I was a teenager, and I was actually walking into a house with my dad. He had purchased, purchased this house that he was planning on flipping, and so we were kind of doing an initial walkthrough of the place, and we went into one of the upstairs bedrooms, and we saw that there was a custom-built desk that had kind of basically been wrapped around the majority of the room. It literally had part of its wall on three different walls. I mean, it wrapped all the way around the corner of a room. It was ridiculous. And we looked at that thing and thought, There is no way we're getting that thing out of this room without either breaking it or it breaking us. So my dad looked at me and said, get the sledgehammer. Those are always happy words for a teenage boy, okay? So I ran downstairs, I got the sledgehammer, and I I was ready to hand it off to him because normally the way it worked with me and my dad was he would swing and I would haul because there was less of a chance of me hurting myself or someone else just carrying the stuff, okay? But this time, he looked at me and he said, why don't you take care of this? My eyes lit up like it was Christmas morning. I took that sledgehammer, and let's just say I took care of that desk. I broke that thing far more than it needed to be broken. You know what I mean? Like I probably could have smashed it into a few pieces and then hauled it out. I smashed the thing to bits. I mean, by the time I was like picking up specs and carrying them out because there was nothing left of that desk. And what I discovered is there is just something fun about destroying stuff. There just is. 
And this experience may or may not have led to a series of videos when I was a youth pastor in which I may or may not have given a bunch of high schoolers, you know, golf clubs, baseball bats, and sledgehammers and told them to break stuff while I filmed it. And let me tell you something. There's something really fun about watching a slow motion video of teenagers swinging a sledgehammer into a watermelon, okay? It's awesome. It's just so much fun. I remember watching these kids just break stuff and recording it and going, man, I'm having almost as much fun watching them break stuff as I would have if I was breaking the stuff. And then I realized something. There's something almost therapeutic about demolition. And I actually have some research to back it up. There's a professor of psychology at the University of California named Raymond Navaco, and this is what he says. He says, demolishing things has a therapeutic value by helping people alleviate tension. That's pretty good stuff right there. What's interesting is I think people have built upon this professor's work and they've started opening up what are known as anger rooms all around the country. The very first anger room opened up in Arlington, Texas, and it was called the anger room. And what you could do is if you were having kind of one of those days where you had some tension that needed to be alleviated, is you could go to the anger room and you could get the first option, which was a five-minute I need a break session for only $25. And what you would be do, what you would do is you would be handed a weapon of sorts for you to step into a room that was designed for you to break everything in there. Or if you're having a really bad day, you could pick the 15-minute option, which is the lash out session that only cost you 45 bucks and you could have 15 minutes to destroy as much as you want or if you were just having like really one of those days you could go for the 25 minute total demolition session for only 75 dollars and at that point they gave you multiple weapons and turned you loose to destroy multiple rooms anybody else sound like that sound like fun for did I mention that these are popping up all over the country? The reason I mention that is if anybody's considering opening one of those in the Brazelton area, not only will I be your customer, I will be your spokesperson, okay? So just keep me in mind if you're considering going down that road. And the reason I share all of this with you is because demolition is not just good for your mind. It's actually good for your marriage. If you're married this morning, if you hope to be married someday, if you're going to be married soon then you need to understand that there are elements of your marriage that you need to continue to break down so that you can build them back up stronger than they've ever been before. And some of you might be going, whoa, are you saying that I've got a bad marriage? Are you saying that my marriage is failing? Nope. What I am saying is that every marriage can get better. In fact, there's an author who's become pretty famous as a speaker as well. His name is Jim Collins. He wrote a very famous book called Good to Great. And in this book, he makes the statement that good is actually the enemy of great. Good is the enemy of great. And so if you've got a good marriage, you've got a good marriage, that actually might be the enemy of a great marriage because you'll settle for where you are instead of what God actually designed your marriage to be. Now, what's interesting is you walk through Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, is a lot of people assume that if you're gonna take that leap from good to great, that you gotta add something new, that you're just one thing away from being great. That's actually not what Collins recommends. He says that for most organizations or individuals, the move from good to great doesn't stem from adding something new. It actually stems from subtracting something old. 
It comes from breaking something down so that it can be built back up. And I think that Chip and Joanna Gaines have kind of come to understand this. If you're familiar with the HGTV show Sensation Fixer Upper, what you've seen is that Chip and Joanna are able to go into a home and they're able to subtract from it before they do any additions. They demo the entire place. And in fact, for Chip and Joanna, or as I like to call them, Chipper and Jojo, because in my mind we're besties, um, (laughs) what they do is they take a place and they break it down completely before they start building it back up. And if you follow the show, you know that Chip Gaines' favorite day is what? Demo day. Well, today here at The Vine, we're having demo day. And what we're going to be demolishing is the top three causes of destroyed marriages in our nation. Specifically, we're going to be looking at the top three causes of divorce in our country. And the number one cause of divorce is where we're going to start. That number one cause of divorce is communications. It's communication. And here's what's interesting about communication. I don't think that marriage is the only type of relationship that communication has interfered with. In fact, I think it's probably broken down all kinds of different relationships in our country. And what I would actually love to do is go through all of the different communication issues that couple experience. But we don't have time for that. What we do have time for is to hit the number one communication issue that couples experience. And the reason we can start with that is because it's actually addressed in Scripture. If you brought your Bible or have a Bible app available, I'm going to invite you to open with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking specifically at verse 33. Again, that's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33. If you were with us last week, you know that we've kind of laid out that our, our blueprint for our marriage redesign is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. And so while you're looking for verse 33, I want to remind you that the backdrop for verse 33 is actually verse 21, which says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, this backdrop begins with the words submitting to one another. That's because any marriage redesign, any marriage that's gonna get put back together is gonna have to start with submission. Not just he submits or not just she submits, but mutual submission where both the husband and the wife decide together that they are going to do everything in their power to elevate the other person, even if it means they're going to be lowered themselves. See, mutual submission is essentially a competition within a marriage where a husband and a wife compete to out one another, one another. Now, if you read throughout the Bible, you'll see all of these commands that end with one another. You're you're called to love one another, respect one another, honor one another, encourage one another, build up one another, support one another. And the list goes on and on. Well, could you imagine what your marriage would be like if every day was a new competition for you to out-love, out-respect, out-honor, to essentially race to be able to serve the other person before they can serve you? Wouldn't that be a beautiful picture of marriage in your life? household? Wouldn't you love it if if the person that you were married with, their sole ambition that day was to honor you and to do whatever it took to show that kind of honor? Well, when you begin to grasp that that is the backdrop for marriage, that that is kind of the foundation level for our redesign, then verse 33 makes so much more sense. Now, check out what Paul writes in verse 33. He says, however, 
Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let me read this one more time. Let me say it a little bit differently. Husbands, let each one of you love your wife as yourself and wives, let each of you see that you respect your husband. That's what Paul writes. You know why? Because the number one cause of communication issues in marriage is that spouses expect their spouse, their significant other, their husband or their wife, to communicate as they were hardwired to communicate when they were born. And they expect that the other person understands their natural form of communication. But that's not always the case, as we see in this single verse. You see, the command is given here in verse 33 that husbands will love their wives and that wives will respect their husbands. And here's why. It's because wives naturally tend to view the world through a lens of love. And husbands naturally tend to view the world through a lens of respect. And here's why this is a huge deal. In relationships, what often happens is there's a breakdown somewhere where a husband gets disrespected or there is a perceived disrespect or a slight to a husband. Or in that same relationship, there's a wife who for whatever reason feels unloved. And when that happens, that couple enters what we call the communication crazy cycle. The communication crazy cycle goes like this. A husband gets really worked up because he feels disrespected. And because he's all worked up and he's feeling disrespected, he communicates in a way that is totally and completely unloving. And because he is communicating in a way that is completely and totally unloving, his wife, his wife then responds disrespectfully, which then fuels his upsettingness and leads to him communicating with even less love in which she responds by communicating with even less respect. And the cycle goes on and on and on. The good news is we can break this cycle. And it starts by simply dis deciphering the code and deciding that we're going to communicate in a mature way. And the code's already been broken for us in verse 33. Here's what it says. It says, husbands, let each of you love his wife as himself. And here's what it's getting at. Husbands, your wife values love above respect. And then it goes on to say, wives, see that she respects her husband. Because here's what that's getting at, ladies. Husbands value respect more than love. And we've got to get this. This is a major shift. When we understand it, it allows us to have conversations that go like this. Say, just in the hypothetical realm, in your household, something doesn't go as you expected, and someone is at fault. In the Irwin household, this happens frequently, and I can tell you who's almost always at fault. This guy, okay? But the majority of the time, when there's a disagreement and who's at fault, nobody owns up to it. And so here's what I've got to begin doing better as a husband. I've got to go to my wife, and I've got to say, I'm, these words kind of get choked up for me sometimes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And there's what follows. 
I'm specifically sorry that I acted unlovingly. And here's what that's followed by. I felt disrespected when, and fill in the blank. I'm sorry that I acted unlovingly. I own my piece of this. Here's when I felt disrespected. And wives, the same goes for you in your households. You start the same way. Hey, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that I acted disrespectfully. I felt of unloved when, and you fill in the blank. And here's what happens when you do that. You cripple the crazy communication cycle. In fact, you eliminate it altogether because what you've done is not just get rid of it, you've actually replaced it with a form of healthy communication in which you have taught the other person what caused your disrespect or what caused you to feel unloved. And when the other person knows those things, they can begin living differently because of them. Here's why this matters. In your household, you can be 100% right about the issue at hand. There could be something going on and you could be completely confident that you are 100% in the right. The other person is completely wrong. But just because you're in the right doesn't mean that you're gonna communicate rightly. In fact, you can be in the right and communicate everything completely wrong. I remember in my last church, I was sitting in the lead pastor's office one day when a, when a leader of the church, in fact, probably one of the, like, the strongest leaders in the church, a guy who was raised in the church his whole life and had, by all accounts, lived a Christ-like life. He came into the lead pastor's office and sat down, and for 10 minutes, he just started to rant about everything that was going wrong in his marriage. And he talked about how he was right about this and he was right about that and how she was wrong about this and she was wrong about this. And by the time he got through his entire list of grievances, me and the lead pastor were worn out from listening to him. And the lead pastor looked at him and said, hey, you might be right about everything you just said, but if you communicate that the same way you communicated to us, to your wife, you will be 100% wrong. He then said this, and it's, it's haunted me ever since. He said, you're on the verge of winning the battle and losing the war. And those words haunted me because they were echoing in my mind a couple months later when I was helping his wife and 15-year-old daughter move out of his house because they could no longer stay there. Because you know what? He won the battle. And it cost him his family. We've got to be people who are willing to communicate our expectations. And that means deciphering the code that, guys, you do. You value respect. And, and ladies, you value love. And that's okay. We've just got to communicate in a way that shows that we understand that. And we've got to be willing to not only decipher the code, but decide to communicate in a way that is helpful in a way that's healthy by maturely saying, hey, I messed up here and I own it, but this is why I did what I did. Can you help me here? And if, if in your marriage you start doing that, it will be a game changer for you. Now, uh, I wish I could say, okay, you get that right, then you're good to go. But unfortunately, we've got some other issues that they just want to attack and break down marriages in our culture. And I want to go to the number two, num number two cause of divorce in our country. And the number two leading cause of divorce in our country is finances. 
finances. Now, I want to be clear about something. Money can't cause divorce. Money does not have any, like, any morality to it, and it doesn't have any power aside from the power that you give it. None. Same goes for finances. Finances cannot cause your divorce. That said, expectations about finances can absolutely lead to divorce, especially when those expectations are different. Here's what's interesting is in our country and really around the world, we, there's within humanity an innate desire and drive for security. And in our country, specifically with the, with the wealth that is available to us, we have found a great deal of our security in our stuff, specifically in our finances. But what's interesting is that people in our culture tend to take one of two forms with that security. They become either savers or spenders. Savers or spenders. And Dave Ramsey, who's kind of a financial guru, says that in marriages, it turns out that savers and spenders actually attract. And so most marriages have a person who's primarily a saver or primarily a spender. And that's interesting because they operate totally differently. Spenders get their security from the ability to purchase a whole bunch of nice stuff. They want the security of knowing, hey, if I need it, I can go get it. And so they do. Hey, I, I need the security of knowing, hey, I can get the nicest stuff around. And that gives them a sense of security. It gives them a sense of place in the world. Whereas savers are kind of the exact opposite. And they get their sense of security from knowing that they have enough. In fact, they value having more than enough. They want more than enough for retirement. They want more than enough for their kid's college fund. They want more than enough in their emergency fund. Instead of, instead of having a three to six month emergency fund, they've got that nine to 12 month emergency fund just in case. And people value things so differently, which is why in marriages, what you'll find is you'll have these couples who have different expectations, and that leads to one or both people overworking, overspending, and sometimes oversaving. And sometimes it happens at the exact same time. Sometimes in marriages, you'll see two, two people working, one so that they can save everything, and one so that they can spend everything. And what you'll see is when that's the case, there's almost always going to be a relational breakdown because the expectations about where their security is coming from are so radically different. And that's why this morning I want to just offer you a couple of tools. If in your marriage, your number one source of tension, your number one source of those conversations that when kids are around, we refer to as heated discussions, they're not fights, right? They're heated discussions. If your number one source of heated discussions in your household is finances, we want to offer you a couple of tools. The, the first is that we have within the life of our church a Dave Ramsey certified financial counselor, and he's willing to meet with you and your spouse for free, and that's a good rate, all right? He will meet with you, and he'll set up a time to get you on a spending plan, now, spending plan is a fancy term for what we probably have heard referred to as a budget. That's right. Now, budgets are a big deal in relationships, and here's why. In order for you to have an agreed-upon budget, you have to submit to one another. You've got to decide mutually 
to submit to the wishes of the other person so that you can be in agreement on what you're going to spend and what you're going to spend it on. And that's huge. Now, some of you might be going, I, I don't think I can even do that in my marriage. Sometimes you get to a point where you can't. That's why having a third party step in and guide you through a process of being able to build a budget is such a big deal. And so if you're going, hey, that would be something we would be interested in, the man in our church's name is Pat Jarvis. You can send him an email at pat at connecttothevine.org. Again, that's pat at connecttothevine.org. Um, you've probably tuned out of the message, so if you want to go ahead and do that, you totally can. It won't hurt my feelings at all. No big deal. But that is a free opportunity that's issued to you because we want so badly for you to get to a point in your marriage where it's easy to mutually submit to one another in the area of finances. And a spending plan known as a budget is a great first step for you. The other tool that we want to offer to you is Financial Peace University. And we actually have a connect group right now that is actually going through Financial Peace University. I talked to the person leading it this morning. They said, hey, we're talking about savers and spenders tonight. And so if you're interested in joining in on the conversation, then you can do that by emailing Gus Bishop. Gus's email is gus at connecttothevine.org, or you can feel free to tackle him after the service today. The second option is more fun for me to watch. I'm just putting that out there. But again, you can go to him and jump into this connect group immediately because it's a game changer for you. And here's how I know that. It was a game changer in my marriage. When Kristen and I got married, we had this brilliant, brilliant financial system in place. You know what it, you know what it was like? It was called pray that we had enough money at the end of the month. And if there was, give each other a high five. That was the extent of our financial planning and what I, what I would tell you is, when you do it that way, you have a favorite month of the year. Do you know what it is? February, because there's only 28 days. Especially when you're coming off a couple of 31-day months. Woo! February is awesome, because you can typically make it to the end of the month. But here's what I want for you. I want for you to get to a point where you aren't just hoping that you have enough at the end of the month. Because here's what happened in our marriage. For the first couple years, we realized that we didn't have a plan, but we actually weren't sinking the ship, so things were going along okay. And then one day, we kind of looked at each other and had a moment of epiphany where we went, hey, we have two incomes, no kids, and no money. How is that possible? And you know what was the worst part of that recognition? It was the realization that we had no idea where our money even went because we hadn't told it where to go, it just left. And what we found is right around the season where we had that epiphany, we had started having more of those heated discussions in the Irwin household, and they sounded something like this. Hey, what did you buy, and why did you buy it? Hey, when did you spend this money, or where did all the money go? You see, because we hadn't agreed on a mutually submitted budget, we both just took it upon ourselves to accuse the other person of spending all the money. Thankfully, in the midst of that season, someone threw us a lifeline in the form of the book, The Total Money Makeover, which was written by Dave Ramsey. And my wife and I chewed through that book. I mean, we just knocked it out. And we immediately were like, all right, this is for us. We need to do this. And then we took the next step of actually going through Financial Peace University, which was a game changer for us. Because what we discovered was we weren't actually bad at money, but when you don't have a plan for your money, 
You don't get anywhere with your money. And Financial Peace University gave us the tools that we needed. It gave us the plan that we needed to actually take some healthy next steps in our finances. And let me tell you something. Since the time we took Financial Peace University, we have not had a single heated discussion about finances in our household. You know why? Because we have a few heated conversations in our budget meeting that happens once a month. But those have gotten fewer and fewer because we're able to communicate about our expectations and we understand that I am a saver and she is a spender and that's okay because we've been able to reach a point where we now know that we're in this together and we know where everything's going and we're on the same team for the journey. And that's a game changer. And that's the kind of game changer we want for you. So again, if you're interested, make sure you check out Pat at connecttothevine.org or Gus at connecttothevine.org if you're interested in Financial Peace University. Now, some of you might be going, all right, isn't that enough? Like, haven't we demoed enough? I mean, we've already hit communication. We, we've already hit finances. Like, do we need to keep demoing? The answer to that question is always yes. If you have a sledgehammer and you need to keep demoing, yes, keep swinging that thing. And I want to swing it at least one more time. And the third thing that we want to demo today is the third leading cause of divorce in America, and that's infidelity. Now, in order to really demo this, we've got to have kind of a candid conversation about a myth. The myth around infidelity is that infidelity begins with physical relations. That's not true. Infidelity almost always begins with emotional relations and then eventually slides its way over to physical relations. And here's how it typically starts in relationships. When a couple gets together, they are showing love to the other person in every way that they know how. And they are receiving love from the other person in every way that they know how. And so even though they have innate ways in which they show love and they receive love, those kind of don't really matter as much because they're in that season where everything's wonderful. You know, when you're looking at the other person and you see like the worst sides of them, they're like, oh, it's so cute, right? Or you, you, you find out like their deepest, darkest secret and you're like, that's no big deal. So you killed a guy, whatever, you know? <laughs> and you can just overlook anything and everything's fine, right? But then something happens. You get past that phase and you have kind of a life together. This happened for my wife and I when we were about two years into our marriage. Kind of the honeymoon had ended and we basically had stopped communicating in that way where it was like, I'm experiencing love in all the ways because I wanna show you love in all the ways and I want you to show me love in all the ways. And what we had done is we essentially reverted back to our natural state of communicating love. And the states of communicating love are typically referred to as love languages. And if you're familiar with Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages, you know that there's kind of five different main ways in which people tend to communicate love, whether they're showing love or receiving love. And for me, my natural way of communicating love is through kind of um, notes, because my, mine is words of affirmation. And so I love it when my wife kind of like sneaks up to the office and leaves a note in my car. Oh, that's the best. Or when she kind of writes some notes in the, on the bathroom mirror. Yes, I'm a little bit girlish, okay? Leave me alone. I saw some of you guys giving me the stink eye, okay? I love it when my wife just speaks words over me. It, hit home, it hits home in a way that I can't explain and it communicates love in a way that I can't even articulate. It matters to me and kind of my secondary uh, my secondary love language is actually acts of service. And so when my wife kind of helps me with things or, or takes over responsibility on things that I was supposed to get done, 
It's huge. It, it means so much to me. You know what those things mean for her? About nothing. Because her love languages are totally different. Her love languages are, um, first and foremost, quality time. And secondly, physical touch. So you know what that means for her? Her ideal for our relationship is to have very consistent date nights in which we either walk side by side on a walk or we sit side by side on the couch and watch a movie. And she can either hold my hand while we're walking or she can kind of lean her head on my shoulder while we're watching a movie, which is absolutely the worst. <laughs> like when I'm sitting on the couch, like three foot bubble rule, right? I mean, I don't, I don't need your head on my shoulder, your hair blowing in my face. Like just... The couch is big for a reason, like just scoot. Or when I'm out for a walk, I want to swing my arms. I don't want to swing your arm too, right? I just, I, like, ugh. And so about two years into our marriage, I was like, this, this is what is happening. And I realized something, and Pastor David says it like this. Things were good in the household, but things were not blissful in the household. Things were not going the way I thought they would go. The things that had been easy were no longer easy. The things that had been just so natural before didn't seem so natural. And those things that I thought were really cute were now really annoying and vice versa. And we got to a point where I realized, hey, I'm not, I'm not showing love for her in a way that she's receiving. She's not showing me love for a way and I'm receiving. And yet I was completely and utterly convinced that both of us still loved each other with all our hearts. There was no reduction in the amount of love. In fact, I would argue that our love had actually grown, but our ability to communicate that love had completely faltered. And so what we had to do was actually go back to the basics and go back through the five love languages and talk through how can I show you love in a way that matters to you, which meant that I had to actually let her cozy up next to me on the couch. It was painful, but I've gotten better at it. And, and she, she for... Like she put in all the effort again to making sure that, that I was receiving notes and texts and that she was being very clear to sit down and have conversations with me and what she built me up. And those kind of things were so huge for us. And what happened was when our emotional intimacy began to improve, it led to increased physical intimacy. And you'll find that in your relationships as well. Because what I don't want for you is what I see all too often. I see couples show up to me and they say, hey, this happened. Either he or she had an affair with somebody else. And what's un like, it's, it happens almost every time they say the exact same words. We still love each other. We're just not in love with each other. The reality is both people still loved each other. They just didn't know how to communicate that love in a way that the other person would understand it. That's why we've got to demo these kind of, these kind of communication, these kind of financial, and these kind of intimacy issues. We've got to demolish them because if we don't, they will destroy our marriage. Because when a person reaches a conclusion that they're loved but not in love, they go looking for love in all the wrong places. And it doesn't start physically. It starts emotionally with someone who makes them feel the way they felt when they were first in love with you. And that eventually moves down a bad path, down a dark road 
and I don't want that for you. What I want for you is to recognize that you can have something so much better. In fact, I was, I was contemplating wrapping up the message today with some of like the horror stories that I've heard and just kind of some of the things that have just been awful. But you know what? <laughs> you live in the same culture I do. You know all the horror stories. You know all the hurts, the pains, the struggles that happen in marriages. So instead, what I want to do is I want to end today's message with hopefully a word of encouragement for you. I want to encourage you today, whether your spouse is here or not, to make the decision that today is the day that you are going to choose to love your spouse as God loves you. Because God loves you with an unshakable, unbreakable, unconditional love. And when you said, I do to that other person, you committed to loving them the exact same way in an unshakable, unbreakable, for better or worse, unconditional way. So I want to encourage you, whether or not your spouse, your significant other, the person you do life with, your husband or your wife, whether or not they do this or not, you will decide that today is the day that you are going to make the changes that are necessary for you to have the marriage that God intends for you to have because the marriage that God wants for you is so beautiful. It's a marriage of unconditional love where you know with beyond a shadow of a doubt, no matter what, that they're going to be there. They're not going anywhere. And even though those things that used to be cute have become annoying, they love them about you anyway because they're a part of who you are and they wouldn't trade you for anything in the world. This morning, church, you, you've got three opportunities to respond. The first is, is pretty simple. The first is, I want to invite you to pray for your marriage. If your spouse is here, I invite you to pray with your spouse. If your spouse isn't here, I invite you to pray for your spouse. But my, my prayer is that you will spend time praying today that you will have the strength you need to demo the areas, areas of your marriage that need to be demoed so that there can be something new that comes in their place, something extraordinary that comes in their place. And if you're here and you're going, hey, I, I'm not married, that's okay. You know what your prayer is? Your prayer is that God would give you the power and strength that you need to demo areas of your life where there are things going on that you know shouldn't be there. <laughs> You have the opportunity to pray specifically today that God would do a work of demolition in you so that you can be restored to the person that God saw before the world began. And this morning, if you're here and you're going, I, I, don't, I came here not even thinking restoration was possible. That's probably because you didn't know that reconciliation was possible because you don't know the source of restoration and reconciliation. But I'd love to introduce you to him. His name is Jesus. He lived a sinless life, died on a cross so that all the world could be reconciled to God. And now he wants to do a work of reconciliation and restoration in your marriage, in your life, and in your family. And he can start that today.
beside the storm, the promise of the shore. And I trust the power of your word enough to seek your kingdom first beyond the barren place, beyond the ocean waves. When I walk through the water, won't be So I will not lose heart 